Hey everybody, welcome to the Daily Objective. And today is a special day because today is Atlas Shrugged Day. Referring to the book by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged. It's harder to say than I ever noticed, you know, but enough about that. Enough about me. Let me introduce you to a man who, um, he's actually from the birthplace of philosophy. I've given him so many different, um, different introductions. At this point, I'm, I'm fresh out of them, but let's just say, um, if Ayn Rand, uh, you know, owes, owes one debt of gratitude, it's to Aristotle. And guess where he's from? Literally down the street from this man right here. Nikos Literally down the street. No, Nikos let's be honest. I was pronouncing your name perfectly and you had to interrupt. This Brought would be the one time that you pronounce the name rightly and people missed it. So yeah, literally five, no, it's actually five hours from where Aristotle is. But anyway, so today we talk about Atlas Shrugged and we talk about how, when we read it, what it meant for us, but also we try to talk about some, discuss, some discussions around the book and also to, to discuss some of the misconceptions about the book. So a lot of people have started reading it and they say, oh, it's too long, all the characters are unrealistic, uh, no one talks like that and all that stuff. So, but first let's talk about the main question that is a question asked by, the question by geeks and for geeks. How many times have you read Atlas Rugged? Twice. Twice. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I should tell the number because if I tell it, people will assume I have zero lives. But- They anyway, already assume that. They already uh -huh. assume that. <laughs> hey. So, okay, I'll, I'll say the number. So it's four times three times read it by myself, one as part of a reading group, and twice in audiobook, the one is um, in the last part. But here's the important thing. Every time I reread it, it tells me something different. So I don't remember almost anything from the first time, except that I really liked it. And that I realized that after reading this, there's no going back to being, you know, half a leftist, half Marxist, or be here and there. My, the time that I've read that is mostly close to my heart is the second time. So I was in a train going for a job interview. And this was a time I was working something like five or six part-time jobs. One of those was a, a teaching job, but a teaching job going nowhere. So I'm in the train and I'm thinking, oh, another job interview that's gonna go nowhere. So as I'm in the train, I take out my Kindle, a uh, boring book, boring book. And I was like, mm, maybe I should reread Atlas Rugged. Within the first two pages, my psychology, my mood changed. I thought, well, this is, this is the world where good things can happen. So I went to the interview, everything went fine, no problem. I got my first proper lectureship. Now, I'm not saying this was Atlas Rock, but so every time I read it, I find something different. So the first time it was obviously the plot, second time was the subplots, third time was the Hank Reardon struggle, fourth time it was the reading group with Greg Salmieri and Ben Bayer a couple of years ago, three years ago. It was the small philosophical, not small, the big philosophical points I've missed. And the last significant time was the Hank Reardon Francisco dialogue about sex that changed a lot of things about my view of the issue. So every time I read it, something new comes up. So have you got any stories, personal stories to share about Atlas Rugged? Lots of stories. Um, so I read The Fountainhead. That was kind of like my big, um, 
aha moment, uh, reading the Fountainhead, uh, I guess about probably about a year before that was when I finished it. I, it's hard to remember exactly what was when, but uh, for me, The Fountainhead was kind of like this life-changing uh, book. Now, I was, I've always been a reader, but at that, in the, during those years of my teenage years, I was about you know, 15, 16, I w my lifestyle did not really lend itself to uh, a lot of voluntary reading. And, but something about The Fountainhead just kind of really uh, was a joy and a half to read. And then um, I got a copy of Atlas Shrugged after that, also, obviously very, very a long book and I was not uh not really uh, a big fan of you know gigantic books at that in those days but again uh there was something about this author that I just really wanted more from I wanted to know more about and I think in the version of Atlas Shrugged that I got it said something in the introduction kind of like a lot of you have questions about after reading The Fountainhead a lot of you have questions about my philosophy I'm, I'm paraphrasing Rand this book like answers a lot of those or all of those. And, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if the fountainhead is like, um, is like, uh, I'm trying to think of a metaphor, but it's like, it takes you from like, okay, if the fountainhead is like the invention of the Atari, you know, the, the first video game console, this is like groundbreaking stuff. But then Atlas Shrugged is like, we're like jumping over to like, you know, Xbox one. It's like, it's like, you thought it can't. I, I, so I thought like, the Fountainhead just really, really solves so many problems by stressing individualism versus collectivism and, you know, the virtue of independence uh, and just selfish ethics. I mean, very revolutionary and uh, reconciling the conflict between the moral and the practical and reconciling the supposed dichotomy between, uh, you know, secularism and morality. So in, in many ways, The Fountainhead was just this earth shattering book. And I thought like, how could it get any more advanced than this? And then Atlas Shrugged is like, it's just take, it just, it's going from two dimensional to three dimensional. And it, uh, it was absolutely uh, out of this world. Um, now I'll admit the first time I read Atlas Shrugged, uh, John Galt's speech was a, br a bridge too far for me. Like I probably read the first 25% of it, maybe even up to 50% of it. And finally just saw how many pages were left <laughs> and back in those days, I said, all right, I get the point or, or I'll get the point another day. The second time around that I read it was uh, a couple of years ago. And this time around, I've really grown to appreciate how, just, first of all, how important every aspect of a philosophy is, how important it is to understand. And, and if objectivism is going to kind of save the world, if people are going to um, understand it and spread it. And if it's going to solve the, the problems in this uh, crazy world we're finding ourselves in today, it, it is ultimately going to be an epistemological battle as well as ethical, but like every detail matters. And when you do, when I was at that time starting to kind of make contact with other sort of junior intellectuals on the internet. And when uh, a lot of them were, they were kind of like retorting with like, yeah, but we don't really reason anyway. Individually, we, 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 uh, uh, Sargon was quoting Jonathan Haidt. If I understand him, this secondhand quotation saying like, first you, you act and then you rationalize it in your mind. Like that was the sort of determinism that Sargon retorted with. And that was kind of what he, uh, turned to. So I, I grow, I really grew to appreciate the fact that epistemology is indispensable. And at that point, also, I understood that epistemology is 
uh, you know, the, the path to certainty and certainty is the path to happiness. So ultimately, if, if not for happiness, none of this is worthwhile, right? None of, none, none of it would, uh, would really um, be worth anybody's time. Life itself and happiness need to, need to be intertwined. Um, and I, I had a much, great, a much more mature understanding of why epistemology matters. The first time around, I didn't even know the word. Um, yeah, makes so, it's so he, hearing re, sorry, just reading the part where Ayn Rand uh, likens uh, perception to arithmetic and con concept formation to algebra. That was like, whoa, okay, this is this is some next level stuff right here. So anyway, are, is your internet cutting out? Are you able to retort? Uh, normally it is, but now I hope I'm I'm back. So it's gonna sound pretentious, but. The sixth time, I enjoyed the gold speech more than any other time. So this goes to people who say, oh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't read it. But uh, yeah, you're, you're in a way lucky because you read it quite young. First time I read it, I was uh, 30, 31. And since then, basically, I read it or listen to it once every year. And let me say something. The audiobook of Founderhead is so good because the guy makes all these different voices. In Atlas, initially, you think it's a bit low energy but you get used to it. So the last two times it was both with the audiobook, And I think unless I have to do it for a project or something, I really like now the audiobook. but some quick questions. So who is a, your favorite character, B your favorite scene. Ooh, tough question. Um, I guess, uh, Francisco is sort of everybody's favorite. He's like, we agree. Um, he's like, the, he's definitely, um, he, he kind of has what, what we want, right. As men, maybe as all people like, the, just the, uh, the fearlessness, the, the seeming fearlessness of just kind of running out and uh, taking what you want, I think is something um, that I, I like. Uh, are you also going to ask which one I relate to most? Because I think, I think Reardon is sort of like the relatable one because he's a man on a journey. He's a man who's learning things as he goes. So, um, so there, there is my uh, double answer. How about yourself? So yeah, we, we obviously agree on that, uh, Francisco, but more relatable with his inner struggles, Reardon. And favorite scene? Oh, uh, favorite scene, man. Well, you should have sent me these questions in advance. This is a tough one. Um, the, um, the, uh, you know what? You know what? I'll, get, I'll commit to this answer. When the homeless man tells his story to Dagny on the train, something about it is so captivating how he kind of takes you there. He just takes you there. And, uh, and he admits, he says, when we were sort of nationalizing, quote unquote, nationalizing, when we were collectivizing the factory um, and we were talking about how this is going to benefit everyone and we're all going to prosper from this. But what I didn't want to admit to myself is that I wanted men of greater capability than me to give me something without me paying for it. Something like that. Obviously, it's always paraphrasing with me. Um, something about that really, really... Uh, uh, lured me in this the most recent time I read it. So if I had to just pick one, my subconscious sent me that one. So that's the one I'll have. So to that scene has, here's what's brilliant about this scene. So this was, let's say, okay, let's, it was written, let's say in the fifties or around that time. How many countless times have various conservatives, libertarians, however we would call them back there, tried to debunk communism? with some good points. So the impossibility of calculation in the socialist system, all these things were very good. I don't think there has been such a concretization and dramatization of why communism 
not is good in theory, but won't work in practice, is bad in theory, and that's why it will not work in practice, than that scene with the bum in the train. So that's a brilliant scene and almost a creepy scene. Specifically when you listen to it, at some point it's like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's too much. Because he gets so deep in the part, so he's a good man, but he goes deep in the part of his soul that there's this envy and, and how he, he sees it in retrospect. So my favorite scene is a bit uh, more, is less creepy, is the party scene of the wedding anniversary scene of Hank Reardon and of course Francisco's performance in it. So imagine this scene as a, I can imagine it as a TV like scene where Reardon in the beginning is, is, is putting his face on the mirror. He doesn't want to go to the party. And then he thinks, is there anyone here who can understand me? And that's when Francisco makes his entrance. So my favorite parts in the book is when Francisco is playing with the guests. And uh, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, defending his, intel his uh, mentor, Hugh Axton. And his, his discussions with Reardon, this bromance, is brilliant. It's one of the things I, I love uh, more than anything else in the film. So we should focus on the good things, but what about a claim that many people have that the good characters are larger than life, the bad characters, no one is like, no, no one, no one would talk like that, or no one is that evil, or no one could be like that. What's your take on, on, on this? I think if anything, the opposite criticism would be more convincing that the bad characters are so much more relatable in, um, in both the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, with the exception of Ellsworth Toohey in the Fountainhead. I think he's meant to be like too evil to be real. Um, but in, in Atlas Shrugged, certainly, um, I was reading these pages and like seeing myself uh, in terms of just taking for granted that, yeah, these businessmen, these, you know, scientists in, and, and businessmen are going to make my life better. They're going to provide all these things. Um, or or, or the, the, another uh, very sort of ominous type of um, sort of tangent part of Atlas Shrugged, I don't know if ominous is the right word, but very powerful moment when, when the train is sort of failing and Dagny's trying to get it fixed and, and uh, the narrator takes you to this place where uh, the, the world around has, have come to expect that just flipping the switch is what, is what makes it all work. Not all the thought that went into conceptualizing and executing the building of this machine. No, it's just somebody whose job it is to flip the switch, that that person is the one responsible for it. Um, kind of that, that's kind of what spoke to me. So I think um, um, a friend of mine once told me that he thinks uh, Paul Krugman, the economist who's always ragging on Rand, that he, read, he probably read Atlas Shrugged and saw himself in those villains and never forgave Rand for it. So I... I <laughs> I think, um, I think there, there's something about the, the bad guys in Atlas that definitely is more um, kind of more captivating because so many of us kind of are in that sort of purgatory. We sort of live in between good and evil for most of our lives to the point where we're sort of faced with it, like the dishonesty of, of characters like James Taggart that, uh, that gives us a choice then. Like, well, do I want to now work my way towards being more honest or do I want to uh, die on the hill defending uh, this type of character? So... Um, I, I think, if anything, your question it, it, uh, might, might be the opposite. Like, what about people? Like, how do you respond to people saying, yeah, the villains are dishonest, but these these, the good guys are way too unrealistic. I think that's, that's a, an allegation people might make. So 
Uh, what do you so, think about the whole thing? So the, uh, regarding the bad guys, uh, mm -hmm. in the last, only in the last three months, I've, we've heard the mayor of Athens saying that if the crisis has taught us something is that there is no I, there is only we. And whoever says I, you should switch channel immediately. We have heard people being pissed off that Jeff Bezos has made more money during the crisis. Uh, we, have made, we have seen people saying that actually the key work, we've understood who are the key workers and who are the parasites. And turns out the capitalists are the parasites. So I don't think that there's anyone who can look the world around or spend 10 minutes on Twitter and say that the bad characters are too unrealistic. Now, when it comes to the good characters, what makes them special is the use of their mind. And what makes us human is the use of our mind. So in a way, these characters are the most humane characters possible because what they have is not a superpower, although some of them are geniuses and we're not gonna reach the levels of, in physics of that person who is not to be named because then it's gonna be a huge spoiler, but their key is the use of their mind. So that's my answer to someone who says that they're unrealistic. No, because they have captured the essence of what it means to be human. So the most humane thing to do in a way is to try to see what the heroes are doing and try to do the same thing. Not in terms of the achievements, because maybe it's beyond our talents or ability or capacity, but in terms of the method. Yeah, I mean, I agree absolutely. Um, I think maybe uh, people make the argument that there would be more jealousy between the men um, in re you know, if, the, if it was realistic, but I mean- That's, I, you know, the, that's the hardest, Swill to peel to yeah. swallow. Sorry, that mm -hmm. triangle. But also, I think the way this triangle is resolved solves one and for all this myth that these situations are not resolvable, because these characters are so open and so sincere. So they say. So for people who don't know, it's like me and Raka like the same girl. And you saw her first, or I saw her first, but now she likes you more than she likes me, but she was my ex. So they put everything on the table. They say, look, if you suppress this, then I, who will still be with her, I'm cheating myself. I live in, in, in a myth. The girl is not happy because she's more into Raka. So whenever she sees me every morning, it's like, oh, it's this guy for whom I'm sacrificing my happiness. Raka is not happy because now his friend is unhappy and the love of his life is unhappy. So basically no one is unhappy. So it's this triangle scene, which is morality applied and reason applied to the most difficult and seemingly unsolvable situation, which is part of the greatness of that book and the way it concretizes some philosophical principles. And also I have to say uh, that if I had to choose maybe one thing in all of Rand's book that I enjoy every time is the romantic scenes because they're unique. The, the, way, the, the way that love and romance is portrayed, it's something that is very difficult to find. Uh, there are many unique things, but the one that I personally enjoy the most is the way that uh, the exaltation and the way that you see that, you know, sex and romance, is something serious, is something big, is something beautiful. And that's, that's why I said that uh, one of the biggest impacts that the fifth time when I actually listened to the book was, was my view of sex. But anyway, 
our time is up. So what are the parting words to people who haven't read Atlas because it's a large book or whatever? So how do we, how, what is our message to these people? You're missing out. Uh, it's excellent. It's life-changing. And, uh, you know, what, what else are you going to do with your time? You know, you're stuck at home. Get the book. Um, I would recommend reading it you know, rather than listening to it. I've never listened to a, to a book. Have I? Maybe not recently. But, uh, you know, I guess everyone has their way of consuming books. If, if, obviously, if you're blind and you've lost your sense of touch so you can't read Braille, then obviously maybe listening would be the right choice for you. But I'm a reading guy. You know, it's harder, but it's more rewarding that way. But by the way, I know this is not exactly an excellent pitch for Atlas Shrugged. I would read The Fountainhead first. Uh, so if you haven't read either one, go in order well, of, their, of their writing, the two of them. What happened with me is I started reading The Fountainhead. Then mm -hmm. I can't wait because I've heard so many things about Atlas Shrugged. I put Fountainhead aside and then I read Atlas Shrugged. So yes, definitely. First time, you have to read it. But... Second time, so my message to people who have read it is reread it and maybe listen to it. Like my, my, the picture I get is me walking in the fields or by the river in York or even in, in my neighborhood in Athens in the early evening listening to it. And I, you really get into it. So yes, first time, read it unless, of course, you prefer listening or there's any reason you prefer to, you'd, you'd have to listen to it. But then I would give it a second chance or a third chance because every time you read it, you get something new. And the way I see it going, I wouldn't be surprised if next year, which will be seven years since the first time I read it, I reread it again. And again, dear viewer or dear listener, I know you're, done, you're not going to believe me, but I do have a life and I do have jobs and stuff. But the book is so good, I can't, I can't resist it. It is excellent. Um, I'll, 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 I'll share one mo more moment that kind of struck me in the valley when Dagny is, is in the valley for the first time and she sees a couple of children that are being raised in the valley. So they're, they, they have never lived outside of the, the Galt's Gulch as it's nicknamed. Um, and uh, they have a look on their face that the, the author describes as, um, I'm paraphrasing from memory, they have a look on their face as though they, they'd never had that moment of realization that they had been lied to. So a certain innocence to them, like they had never had the moment of realizing they had been lied to. That anger that hits you when you're sort of growing up and you realize the adults around you are full of it. Um, that was, That's that was interesting mm -hmm. because uh, I've been told that Ron hates children and there's not a single child in any of your novels. So maybe Raka is making this up. Maybe this scene is not. No, yeah, I mean, that's an under, under, under uh, cited. Uh, that, that's kind of all you really need. If you're going to have a, a novel for adults, that's really the only mention of children that you really need. Other than that, children are not that interesting. Um, maybe, they, maybe now I've just opened a can of worms anyway. Back, back <laughs> to you. Close us off. Close this off. No, no, I'll close the can by saying that this is a real scene. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's just that we had a couple of comments by people say, oh, you know, kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. they say that. They say, they say the philosophy, yeah. not, only, not only that it, it doesn't, it's too rational for to deal with children, but also selfishness does not permit for having children. But, you know, it's, that's, that's a big topic, maybe a topic for another episode. So yeah, we debunked the myth of uh, the social security. So maybe at some point we'll debunk the myth. There's no children run, hate children or, or whatever. Mm. Anyway, ending with a positive vote, uh, on a positive note. Again, if you haven't read the book, I, feel, I think you're very lucky. I would really like to go back in time and read this book, 
not knowing what's going to happen because to be honest i can't remember i can't remember i can't remember that feeling anyway well i know a guy downtown i know we're out of time but for a nice amount of money he will punch you so hard that you'll forget everything so uh, uh, we'll, we'll i'll probably i'll probably pass though on that aspect it would be it would be appealing anyway from myself and from raka all the best and see you soon bye bye